of you like coffee? A bunch of you like coffee. Me too. I like coffee. I like about this much coffee with this much milk, a uh, little vanilla and uh, caramel in it. it. Tastes just like it's the best coffee I've ever had. Uh, I love I love that kind of coffee. How many of you know what Kopi Luwak is? A few of you know. Don't run it for everybody else. Kopi Luwak is literally the most expensive coffee in the entire world. Um, it's uh, uh, it, it's two Indonesian words. It comes from Indonesia. Uh, one pound bag of Kopi Luwak coffee can cost over $300. I mean, can you imagine $300 for a bag, a pound of Kopi Luwak? A cup can cost you anywhere to $55 to $70 just for a cup of this coffee. But they say it is the most exquisite coffee in the entire world. I mean, once you drink it, I mean, you'll it ruins coffee for you. It's just that good. It's supposed to be the most incredible thing. But if it doesn't have milk and caramel in it, I ain't drinking it. <laughs> but it's supposed to be amazing. Uh, it comes, the word kopi is the Indonesian word for coffee. And the word luwak is the Indonesian word for cat. And what happens is the Indonesians on the islands there where they grow the coffee, they have this thing called the Indonesian civet cat. And it's kind of like a rodent. It looks kind of cute in pictures, but it's kind of like a rodent. And what he does is at night, he's a nocturnal eater. And so he goes at night and he goes all over the island and he eats the choicest berries off of the coffee plants. He eats the absolute best berries that he can find and, uh, and then, you know, eats them all night long. And then a few days later, after all of that has made its way through his digestive system, his digestive tract, it comes out looking like this, which reminds me of a payday bar. But uh, <laughs> you know what I love about that is that some of you like payday bars, but you're never going to look at them the same again. <laughs> and we hope that the farmers pick up these payday bars and clean them up, right? And they roast them, and that's where you get Kopi Luwak. It's a pretty amazing story. And I tell you that story because of this. What I learned is that there are some really, really, really good things, really good things that can come out of <laughs> And I promised Chris I wasn't going to say crap, so I'm not going to. But there are some really, really good things that can come out of some really, really messed up situations. Some really good things that come out of some really bad places. Uh, the, tru the truth is, that's the story of my life. Uh, I have a before Jesus time in my life and uh, in the life of my family, which I know Chris has shared a lot about. But over the course of the last two months, we've gotten to share with our family in two weddings. Uh, my oldest son was married two months ago, and then Tricia... Chris and Sandy's daughter was married Friday night, and our family came together. And what I realized at those weddings and standing around and looking at them, and even today when they were sitting over there, is that God has brought some really good things out of a really messed up place. Out of family that lived and grew up in incredible dysfunction, our kids don't live like that. God took a really messed up thing and has done some really good things with it. Because that's who God is and that's what he does. But the truth is, when I think about my personal life, while I grew up in some dysfunction, 
it wasn't all about what I grew up in. I invited a lot of the chaos and the trouble into my own life by my choices and my decisions. And many of you know what I'm talking about. Because of choices, of decisions that you have made in your life, you invited some junk into your life that you still carry around even to this day. Maybe you experienced some really difficult things financially because of choices. Maybe you were given an opportunity that you knew was questionable, but you chose to do it anyway. It could be something you allowed into your life a long time ago, and as a result, there has bitterness and resentment and regret has come into your life. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in right now or that you were in for a long time. Maybe you invited chaos into your marriage or because of your choices, your Kids invited chaos into their life, and it's entered into your family. When I look back on my life, I know exactly when and what chaos I invited into my life, and you know what it is for you. And all of it, every single part of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, has become a part of our story. But I want you to think about this question for the rest of our time today. And it's a question that really, I believe, can help define your life moving forward. Is it going to cause all of the past choices and decisions to disappear? No. But it is a question that I think if you'll ask it will help reshape your future, your relationships, maybe your work environment, the way you hope to lead your family, the way you hope to lead your family someday maybe, the way you want to make a difference in this life. It's not going to make all the junk that we've allowed to enter in go away, but it will help you realize that it is not your past that defines you. But where you go from there, or from here, today, that will define you. So here's the question. What story do you want to tell? But what's the story that you want, from right now until the end of your life, what story do you want your life to tell? Every one of us is telling a story with our life with our choices, with our actions, the way we walk every day right now, what story do you want to tell? And Moses in Psalm 90 said, had a great thing. He said, he said, I want you to, he said to God, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. You know what that means? That means there are, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. So what story between now and the end do you want to tell? We don't normally think of it like this. We normally make decisions and choices in a moment, and usually they're based on how we feel or what we want or what the benefit for us is. We don't think of it this way because in a decision-making environment, it's all about the moment. But everything you are doing right now is going to be a story that someday you are going to tell. And I promise you, none of it's going to be hidden. And the question you have to ask is, what story do you want to tell? In every transition in life and in every decision-making environment, you are writing the script of a story that someday you're going to tell. And again, the dilemma for us, and I'm going to explain this from Scripture in a moment, the dilemma for us is this. We already have a story up to this point in our lives, but when we are facing new decisions and new obstacles and new opportunities, we forget to attach the current to the past. And we forget to ask the question, which of these opportunities, which of these choices best fits with the story that I want to tell with my life? And not just that, 
But what are these choices and decisions? How do they fit within the context of the story I've been telling and the story that I'd like to tell with my life? Because the next season of your life, again, no matter what, no matter how scary and, and uncertain it is, it's nothing more than a story that one day, someday, you're going to have to tell. And here's what I know about me. Here's what I know about you. You want to tell a good one. And you want to be able to tell the whole thing. You want to be able to look at your kids someday when they're adults and you want to tell them the whole story and not have to skip any parts. You want to be able to look into the eyes of the person you fall in love with someday and spend the rest of your life with, and you want to tell them the whole story. You're not going to want to have to lie about your story. You're going to look at your spouse, and you don't want to have to lie about the life and story you've been telling. And the way that you get there is to remember that in every decision-making environment, you ask the question, what is the story that someday I want to tell? Now, there's an amazing illustration of this in the Old Testament. In fact, the great thing about this illustration is it comes uh, from a story that almost every one of us in here are going to already know, or at least know something about it. Specifically, it's a story that spreads out through a whole bunch of chapters in the book of Genesis. We're going to stay mostly in Genesis 41. It's the story of Joseph. And I know that most of you know bits and pieces or the entire story, but here's why Joseph's story is so relevant to this principle that we're going to talk about. We know more about Joseph's story in a condensed period of time than probably anyone else in the entire Old Testament. I mean, when Joseph was 17, he had 10 older brothers and one younger brother, and his older brothers were jealous of him because his father, Jacob, seemed to love him more. And when he was 17 years old, he went way, 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 way from home out into the pastures where his brothers were tending the flocks. And when his brothers saw him coming, you remember this, they began to have a discussion. And I bet... Some of you have had some really difficult sibling rivalries, but I bet none of you had this kind of sibling rivalry where your brothers or your sisters would have a discussion where they said, should we kill him or just sell him? And I've only thought about that one time in my life and about only <laughs> one of my siblings. <laughs> should we kill him or just sell him? All for kill, all for sell, right? And as Joseph gets closer, they decide they're going to throw him in a well and decide later. And so they rip up his coat. They pull his expensive coat because he's a kid from a rich family. And so he's kind of a rich, spoiled kid. And they take his coat, they throw blood on it, they rip it up. They go to his father, Jacob, and they say, look, Dad, I don't know what happened. It must have been a wild animal that got a hold of him and killed Joseph. And they go back, they find him, and they sell him to some slave traders. And he ends up in Egypt. He's purchased on an auction block by a man named Potiphar, who is captain of Pharaoh's personal guard, and he ends up in the home of this wealthy Egyptian, but now he's a slave. And at this point in Joseph's story, he has several decisions to make, decisions that he never wanted to make, decisions that he never thought he would have to make. I mean, how do you respond to being kidnapped by your brothers and sold as a slave into a nation where you're never going to go home again? And you're never going to see the people you love. I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do when it seems like God has abandoned you or is inactive in your life or is silent or just doesn't care? What do you do with that kind of story? And it's a fascinating story because Joseph does something that very few of us would do. 
He decides not to play the role of a victim, but instead decides that he is going to accept his fate from the hand of God. Somehow God's will is in this for his life, and he responds in such a way that he takes responsibility for being a slave very seriously. He does the best of a slave, and over time, Potiphar recognizes that this is an unusual Hebrew, and he gives him more and more and more responsibility. And after a while, he's in charge of Potiphar's entire household. He handles the money, he handles the other slave, he manages the household. Potiphar turns it all over to him, and Joseph finds himself in a pretty good situation. Now, he's still a slave, and, and, and there's still restrictions. He can't go home, but things are about as good as they possibly could be for somebody in that kind of situation who has been kidnapped from home and treated the way he has been treated. But then he's faced with a dilemma that he never saw coming and he never thought he would ever be faced with. And again, he was forced to make a decision, like many of us, about the kind of story he wanted to tell with his life. And in this case, it didn't matter which choice he made, he was going to lose. You see, Potiphar's wife liked Joseph and wanted to sleep with him. And Joseph had to make a decision about the story that he wanted to tell with his life. And so he decides, I'm not going to do it. But she keeps at him day after day after day, and she gets him in a compromising situation. And he runs, he leaves his coat, she screams, listen to her story. Chapter 39 of Genesis, verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, and then she told him this, what? Story. You see, she had already decided the kind of story that she wanted to tell with her life. So she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but so as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Now because of the story of her life, Joseph is thrown in jail. And don't you know at this point he's got to be thinking, what is going on? Is this really the story you want for me, God? Is this really the story that you planned for my life? Is this really what my life is going to be about like this? I mean, haven't I walked through enough? Haven't I been sold into slavery? Haven't I done everything that you've asked me to do? Is this really the story of my life? And before I get to my favorite part, I do want to say something about Joseph's story because he's not completely innocent. And I don't mean about Potiphar's wife. You know, from the very beginning, Joseph was writing a story and it included being the favorite son. And while being the favorite son had, had some perks with it, it also brought a lot of jealousy and animosity from his brothers. I mean, he snitched on them. And we all know snitches get stitches. That's just the way it is. <laughs> and then Joseph tells his brothers about two dreams. He ba and, and in it, he basically says, you guys are going to one day be bowing down to me. Now, what would it take for you to hear your sibling tell you you were going to bow down to them? And Genesis says the brothers burned with anger and hate and that led them to do what they did. And that is the story they chose to write. And it's the story they're having to live with today. But Joseph isn't completely innocent. And yet his arrogance didn't mean he deserved what he got. But let's see the story that God is going to write in all of these men's life. Joseph is in prison. It's really a dungeon. And it seems like everyone has forgotten about him, including God at this point. But the truth is, God hasn't. And can I stop a minute and just say this? This may be the part of the story for Joseph, but it's part of our story as well. 
Because no matter what condition you and I find yourself in, no matter who's trying to write your story, no matter who's trying to throw things into your story or, or, or the junk that you've allowed into your story, this is the truth. God has not abandoned you. And the promise of Scripture is that He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. Even when it feels like He's gone, He's still there. When you and I walk into those moments, how many times do we judge God's activity or His silence or his inactivity in our life as God's absence? How many times do we judge God based upon his activity in, or his inactivity in our life or when he's silent or he's not meeting our needs? How many times do we judge that as God's absence? And here's the reality of it. God's, God's silence is not an indication of his absence, nor is it this. God's silence and inactivity in your life is not an indication of how much he loves you. You want me to tell you how much he loved you? He sent his son and died for you. And if he never did anything else, that was enough. God may be silent, but he is not absent from our life. And here's the reality of it. Joseph did not let God's seeming inactivity impact his faith, and you and I can't either. Because no matter how you feel, God, just, just as he was with Joseph, he will be with you even when you don't feel it, even when you don't see him. And he has a story that he wants to write in your life, just like Joseph's. All right, back to our story. Joseph's in prison. Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has two dreams. They trouble him greatly. And so in chapter 41, verse 8, it says this, in the morning his mind was troubled. And so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Now suddenly one of Pharaoh's attendants, his cupbearer, remembers something. Years earlier, the cupbearer had offended Pharaoh and he spent his own time in jail. And there he had met Joseph and he recalls the ability Joseph had to uh, that God had given Joseph to interpret dreams. And so in verse 9, he says this, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings, which is probably always a good way to come at Pharaoh. Pharaoh was once and angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker. Don't you want to know what the chief baker did, right? He imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with a, sorry, this is my favorite part. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them for us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. He did something really bad when he was baking. And don't you wish that story had been written differently? Don't you think he was thinking that? And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He tells him his dreams, and once again, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. Look at verse 28. It's just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. So he tells Pharaoh the meaning of these dreams and it's a warning from God that there's gonna be seven years of this abundant harvest in Egypt where more food is gonna grow than they could possibly eat, but those seven years of plenty are gonna be followed by seven years of famine, which will devastate the land and the people. And after giving the interpretation, Joseph wisely instructs Pharaoh to put someone in charge of a program to save up and store food so that they will be able to survive the coming famine. Pharaoh is so impressed, he's so impressed with Joseph's abilities and wisdom that he says this. 
in verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one, dis- no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And in a matter of moments, Joseph goes from being a prisoner to being Pharaoh's second in command. The second most powerful man in all the world. And sure enough, as the years unfold, everything Joseph said would happen, happens. There are seven good years of harvest, but Joseph makes sure they don't consume all the food, instead saving huge portions of it. Right after that, the famine comes, and yet because of Joseph's leadership and insight, the Egyptians have plenty and countless number of lives are saved because of Joseph. Genesis chapter 41, verse 57 here says this, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And here's where the stories began to intersect. The famine had spread across the globe, so people from all the surrounding countries start coming to Egypt to get food. And who shows up? Joseph's brothers, right? The same brothers who'd sold him into slavery, and they're looking for food. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now, in order to get food, you had to go through Joseph. And this is where it really gets interesting because Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And then notice what his brothers do. They bow down before, you remember Joseph's dreams? They bow down before him. And it's at this point, Joseph's got to be thinking, it is so on. <laughs> it is on like Donkey Kong, man. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that's in the original language, but Don't you know he's thinking about that? And, and don't you know as we walk through this that he's got to be thinking about what is my story going to be? Because you've been through all the things that he's been through, and now for the very first time, he has a chance for what? Revenge. He has a chance to put them in their place. And would he have every right to? Yes. Would he have the power to? Yes. And, and you can see this, as we'll see in just a minute, you can see him almost struggle with this because he sends him to prison for three days. You can see him almost walking through this about what story am I going to tell? What am I going to be able to tell with my life? Joseph keeps his identity concealed. He starts messing with them. First, he accuses them of being spies, but the brothers explain that they are 10 of 12 brothers. The reason they're only 10 is because one was sold into slavery and the youngest is still back home with their father. Joseph pretends not to believe them, and he has them thrown into jail for those three days. And after that, he lets them all out except one. And in chapter 42, verse 18, he says this, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let the one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you uh, go and take grain back for your starving household. But you must bring back your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. And so you can tell he's still struggling, but he's given him a way out because he wants to write a different story with his life. And so the brothers, they huddle up together, speaking in their native tongue, not realizing that Joseph can hear every word. And the older brother starts laying into all the other ones and saying, look, the story that we were writing when we sold him, today is the day we are facing the consequence of it. Today is the day when that payment is coming due. And Joseph hears this, right? And a really interesting thing happens in chapter 42, verse 24, that you have to take note of. Look at what he says. It says, he turned away from them and he began to weep. As his brothers are fighting, Joseph turns away and he breaks. He breaks down. 
and he starts crying. He starts, letting, he starts just letting it all out, right? He starts letting everything go that has been in him because here's the reality. That's the way it is oftentimes with deep personal wounds. I mean, maybe he thought the pain was gone. It was buried beneath the years. And, and that's, that's just the way it is, though. We find ways in our lives to hit the mute button on pain, but then something happens, and all of a sudden, it all comes rushing back to us. Because everything, all of it, the good, the bad, the struggle, the victory, is a part of a story that every one of us is writing with our lives. But I want you to know that Joseph's story ends differently, and it ends well, and I believe ours can as well. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, there was so much pain and anguish in his life that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence. And so eventually Joseph stops and he, he reveals himself. And if they weren't freaked out in that, now they're really freaked out when they realize the, most, the second most powerful guy in the world is their little brother who they sold into slavery. But instead of re retaliating like they expected him to do, G Joseph reaches out and he wants to reconcile with his brothers. And though he was the one wrong, Joseph says, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. I didn't understand it then and you didn't understand it with the life you were writing and, and the story you wanted to tell, but God was putting a different story together and he used me even in, the, even in the mess that this was. God can bring out good out of it. God sent me ahead to pres preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. He gets really personal. He says, God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than any sin. He's bigger than any sin you've done or any sin I've done or any sin that has been done to you. God can even use the messiest situations that we face to bring, to bring about great good in this world, in my life, in your life, and in our stories. Joseph sees God redeeming every messed up thing that's happened in his life, and he says this in chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, you intended to write a different story, you intended to write a story that was going to separate me from, from God, from you, from everyone, you intended a different kind of story, but God intended it for my good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what's the story that you're going to tell? You know, for some of us, it's easy to name the tough parts of our story. Maybe it's a specific relationship that's wounded us or it's a business deal that ended up bad, some financial decision that we're still paying for, or it's a diagnosis that has changed our day-to-day -day life. For others, it's not easy to pinpoint. It's a feeling of sadness that can't be lifted. It's a difficulty trusting other people. It's a sense of loss or loneliness that you just can't seem to be able to explain. What's the story that you're going to tell? From this moment forward, what are you going to tell? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but God was with him, and he was put in charge of Potiphar's household. He was falsely accused by the 
Potiphar's wife and throw it into prison, but God saved him and was with him and he earned the respect of a jailer. Joseph was forgotten in a dungeon for two years, but God was with him and he is not only freed, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. God redeemed all of the messed up things in Joseph's life and he uses them to save the lives of thousands of people, including his own family. And I know this, God wants to redeem your situation and my situation too. Because Joseph partnered with God by staying close to God through all of the messes and all of the challenges each time he found himself in yet another predicament. He went to the one he knew could turn his messed up situation into something extraordinary. He knew that God did not make the horrible circumstance happen, but had the power to turn it all into good. Joseph didn't know he'd end up in the palace of Pharaoh's chief advisor, just like we don't know the end of our redemptive stories yet. But God's desire is to write the ending to your story, and he can, if we trust him. If we understand that he is for us and he is working on our behalf, we can write a story that's worth telling. Listen, the chances are either you, you're coming out of a really difficult circumstance, or you're about to walk into one, or you're living in one right now. And the good news today is that no matter what you have been through, Paul wrote and said, we know that in all things, we know that in every situation, we know that in every place you find yourself, we know that every time you think God is absent, he's not. We know that in all things, in every place that you find yourself, God works for the good of those who loved him. God does not make everything for the good. He does not make everything work out perfect, but he works for the good of those who who love him and have been called according to his purpose. No matter what you go through, God can redeem it because your story isn't over. And you need to remember that regardless of what you're walking through or in does not indicate how God feels about you. Every decision and every choice and the outcomes of those choices become a permanent part of your story. So when you tell your story, what do you want to tell? Because you have to decide, parents, your story is the story your children are gonna tell. And they will live out and respond to and reach to and take courage from or have to overcome your story. So live a good one. Husbands, you decide what story you're going to write together with your wife. And wife, you get to decide what choices are going to shape the story of your marriage. If you're single, your current story is the story you're going to tell the person you married. And so tell a good one and be able to tell the whole story. People are going to know your story because you are writing it with every decision and every choice you make. And I want to encourage you to write a good one and to live a good one and to tell a good one. You tell a God on your story because that is a decision you will never, ever, ever regret. About four years ago, our father passed away. And the story of his life was one of self-indulgence and whatever made him happy. And so at the end of his life, the story that he had written basically came down to this one thing. He had lost every significant relationship in his life. He had no one. And he had nothing, nothing. Three days before he passed away, I was there. And the doctor told me that there wasn't anything they could do. And so I had to go sit beside a bed with him. And I looked him in the eye and I said, Dad, there's no hope. There's absolutely nothing that they can do. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to mean, and I don't know how long that means. I just know this, there's nothing they can do to turn this around. 
But I looked at him and I said, Dad, you've written a story with your life. But however long you have left, you can tell a different one. Your story can change. You can end differently. And for the very first time, I had a serious conversation with my dad, and I told him about Jesus. And I'd love to tell you I know the ending of the story, but I don't. I don't know what he did with it. One day I'm going to find out. Because one day I'm going to be in a place that I long to be, and he'll either be there or he won't. But guess what? Either way, it's going to be a great day for me. What's the story that you want to tell with your life? What is the story that you want to tell with your life? Because you're telling it. You're telling it every day and people are watching. So what's the story that you're going to tell?